John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. John 1, 35, we have found the Messiah. Verse 35, again, the next day, John was standing and two of his disciples. And he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. They came, therefore, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful to be in your presence and to meditate on your holy word. We come to you in faith. We come to you believing that these are the true words of God given by your Holy Spirit. And Father, now we ask that you will show us from these examples what true faith is and how this true faith is manifested and spread abroad. Firstly, Lord, to our loved ones and from there to others. We ask, Father, that you'll be present with us and enable us to have this kind of faith, this kind of enthusiasm, this kind of desire to spread the gospel. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, now we have come to another day of of the sequence of events in this chapter of John chapter 1. One day, the religious leaders or the authorities approached John to ask him about Christ or, or what he's preaching. And he says he's not the Christ, he is preaching about Christ. And then the following day, verse 29, we have John identifying to the crowds who Christ is, or who Jesus of Nazareth is. is He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, after that identification, the following day, which is verse 35, 35 to 42, we have John's two disciples transferring their allegiance from John to Jesus. Not that they rejected John, John the Baptist. They weren't rejecting him, but we're talking about their daily activities and where their focus was and who they attached themselves to in order to learn from him. And that is from John to Jesus. In this case, we have these examples of the two disciples that were with John. And then one of them is named Andrew. And then Andrew finds his brother, Peter. So by the end of the paragraph in verse 42, we have three of these who had been under the ministry of John the Baptist and now are transferring their followership or their daily activities and learning and growth in the Christian faith to Christ. This is what we have here in John chapter 1, verses 35 and following. Now, John uh, John the Baptist is... Here, followed by two of his disciples. Now, look carefully at verse 35. Two of his disciples means two of John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples. Two of them. Now, John had many of them, and he was preparing the way and preaching to the crowds of people and baptizing them, preparing them to receive Christ. He kept on preaching Christ. We know he preached Christ in John 1, 29, because he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We also know from Acts chapter 19, verse 4, that it says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. This was the ministry of John, preaching the coming of Christ, the imminent personal appearance and personal ministry public ministry of Jesus Christ. That's what John was all about. He was the forerunner and harbinger of the coming of Christ. So, 
When it says here in verse 35 that he has two disciples, we have to understand what this means. Sometimes people are misunderstanding the word disciple. The word disciple is used variously in the scripture. The word disciple, basically, it just means a student or a learner. A student or a learner. And one could be a student or a learner in different contexts in the world. It could be in a formal school context or it could be in an informal context. It doesn't matter. It's one way or another. And in this case, John, he is the prophet and he has followers, people listening to him, learning from him, growing in their faith because of the ministry of John. So those people who are with him in this followership are known as his disciples. This is not meant to be a disparaging comment about John, and it's not meant to be a contradiction to the 12 disciples of Jesus, and it's not meant to be any kind of contradiction as to we, us, being disciples of Christ. And there are certain people who like to identify themselves as disciples of Christ or followers of Christ. Um, So in this case, a disciple is merely somebody who was under the preaching and teaching ministry of John the Baptist. So John had some disciples, but two of his disciples are now, instead of following him, because John has always been about pointing people to Christ, they are now going to actually find Christ and personally follow him. From this point onward, we're going to have these three men do so. And then in regards to the 12 disciples of Christ. The 12 disciples of Christ are also called the 12 apostles. The 12 apostles or the 12 disciples. In that context, the word disciple is a synonym of apostle. Disciple meaning a learner and an apostle meaning someone who is sent on a mission, a commission. Somebody who has a task sent from one person to go and handle matters for that person. So the apostles mean that. The 12 disciples or the 12 apostles, we're talking about the same 12 group of men. But a disciple can be more than just the 12, such as you and I. Those who are believers in Jesus Christ are also known as disciples of Christ. Then, verse 36. We have two mentioned, and it says in verse 36, and he, that is John, John the Baptist, looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. So the previous day, he's pointing out to people, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next day, he's got the same message succinctly here. Behold, the Lamb of God. He's still pointing people to Christ. Remember, John has already said that he's um, unworthy to untie the thong of Jesus' sandals. John will say later in John chapter 3, He must increase, 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. In John 3.27, he says, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. So John is always about pointing people to Christ, not to himself, but to Christ. He keeps himself humble and points to Christ and Christ alone, which is also what we should be doing, correct? we also should be doing the same. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul speaks like this in reference to himself as a model for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll begin at verse 1. Remember, in Corinth, there are conflicts going on between the people, the believers in Corinth. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says... And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? 
servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. What does the apostle say? We should not be proud and boastful, arrogant in saying, I'm of Apollos, I'm a Paul, or anybody else. We should not be like that. Instead, the preachers of the gospel, just as John the Baptist was, and just as all of us are, when we preach the gospel, who are we? We are servants, verse 5 says, we are servants through whom you believe. We are servants faithfully carrying out our master's will so that others might believe as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. As God gives us uh, opportunity, this happens. So in, the term, in terms of agriculture, verse 6, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. Yes, we need somebody to plant, we need somebody to water, and it could be two different individuals. But who causes the plant to grow? It's God. God, in His ways, causes the plant to grow. So we are nothing, he says. We're not anything, verse 7, but God is the one who is everything because He causes the growth. Yes, we will each receive a reward for our faithfulness to God, but really we should be pointing people to Christ and not to ourselves. John is the one who does the same consistently in order to make sure that his followers, his own disciples, realize that they should go now to Christ because he's been always preaching Christ. In John 1.36, we notice something else. Remember, we have this brief message. John says, Behold, the Lamb of God. What he's doing here is summarizing in a very brief statement or exclamation what the gospel is and what our focus should be. That Christ is the Lamb of God. He does not speak here in this case of Christ's exaltation. He does not speak in any elaborate way about the ministry of Christ. He merely says, behold, the Lamb of God. Because if we were to succinctly explain the gospel, it would be in reference to the cross. Because a lamb is only useful in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. The lamb is only useful if the lamb is an unblemished lamb that is put to death because of the worshiper. Right? So it has to be a perfect lamb who dies for the sin of the worshiper. Now, of course, the lamb itself never paid for anybody's sins, but only in reference to Christ is anyone forgiven. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians speaks like this as well. If we were to summarize the, the Bible, we would say it's the cross or the cross of Christ. The Lamb of God or the cross of Christ. When we think about the crucifixion, why it was that Christ died, that's where we have to go. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever, I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are, uh, are the those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, 
the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What is it that people want? Jews have their hang-up. They want signs. They want to see miracles. Greeks have their hang-up, or Gentiles have their hang-up. They want to pursue wisdom, human wisdom, intelligence, philosophy, human philosophy. This is what they want to pursue. And we could name a whole host of other things that people like to pursue. Or as he summarizes, he says in verse 26, he says, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, not many among the believers are like this. Worldly wise, worldly mighty, with a lot of power, force, use of force, or not many noble. We're not, in the believers, not many people in nobility, in high places in our world, are they believers. Not many of them. But it is usually the common man. It's usually the common man, the lowly man, the man of no reputation, that believes in the gospel. Because God intended it to be that way. Why? Because the cross, the cross itself, when a mighty man hears of the cross, he thinks, why should I believe that? Only a weakling would have let himself be arrested, captured, and then impaled on a cross. If a noble man thinks of the cross, a noble man will think also, well, he must have been some nobody out there Nobody of reputation would ever have been crucified like that. So he was a nobody. I'm a somebody. I'm a nobleman. Or think about the wise men. Christ was not wise, according to them, because if you are wise, if you are shrewd, if you know how to manipulate and deal with matters in the world, how to handle people and deal with people, if you are worldly wise like that, you would never succumb. You would never be a a victim of being arrested and crucified. That would never happen to you. You see what happens? People who are worldly wise, worldly mighty, and worldly noble, they don't care for the cross. But that's all we have. And that's the focus of the gospel. The focus of the gospel is that we are nothing before God. God intends to nullify everything that the world considers to be valuable He wants to nullify, make nothing the things that are considered a reputation in the world so that nobody can boast. The only thing that we should boast about is the cross. Let him who boasts, boast of this, that he knows the Lord. Nothing else matters. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 6, 14, But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul the Apostle did not want to preach anything else. He wanted to preach the cross of Christ. He wanted that to be front and center so that people might understand why it is Christ came into the world, who God is, why he came into the world, and what our relationship is to the cross of Christ, to the death of Christ. Why the Lamb of God is the most important or most central focus of our gospel preaching. Paul did it. John did it. We should do the same. Preach the cross. Don't let anybody mitigate the cross. Don't let anybody do that. The cross must be preached. Back to John 1. John 1 and now at verse 37. John 1, 37. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. They heard him speak. They understood correctly what John the Baptist was preaching. They understood correctly 
that John was keeping himself humble, that he was not to be followed in the same way as Jesus was to be followed. There was a superior, ultimate way in which they should follow Jesus. So here too, a humble man, as these two disciples were, the humble disciples, they went from one to another without any difficulty because they knew their hope was already in Christ. John was preaching Christ and they wanted to personally see him and meet him and this is the occasion for it to occur. They easily went from whoever to Christ himself. This is the, the fruit of true teaching. The fruit of true teaching is when you are taught Christ to follow Christ, whoever is teaching you, the focus that you will have is that you will run and go straight to Christ. You will not depend on them. You will not say, well, how about you and Christ? It will not be that way. It will be Christ and Christ alone. Even though most of the Jews in that day and throughout history did not believe in Christ. They did. They did. And in that same way, if the, they as Jews, most of them did not believe, but they did. And they had to deal with the vast majority of their own people who would not believe. Why should it surprise us that that's the way it is in the world throughout history and throughout every place in the world? There will be those who will not want to give up their false beliefs, whether that's in Judaism believing in false notions about the coming of the imminent coming of Christ or the world to come or the afterlife because many within Judaism, even today and throughout history, they have had false beliefs about the Old Testament, false beliefs about salvation. They believe in work salvation. They think that everything is going to be about them just because they are Jews. No, it doesn't work that way. But that happens in other religions too. It happens in other religions where people think it's fine to just remain as they are or if they maintain some things about their religion and some things with, um, in Christianity, they can mix and mingle the two together, merge them, and everything will be just fine. But they, that can't be the case. Here... They followed Jesus. They went straight to Jesus and followed him and him alone, even to the detriment of their own reputation in the eyes of all of their countrymen. Verse 38. Verse 38. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? What do you seek? Jesus sees them and challenges them. You notice this? When people come to Christ, Christ doesn't immediately say as though he is a needy man, as though he is a man who needs the praise and that he needs the adoration of others. He doesn't do it that way. This is completely upside down according to the way things are working today. People today think that we should uh, bow to every whim and fancy of the people in order to make sure that they keep coming, in order to make sure that they attach themselves to Christ or say that they are Christians. That, that's the way churches are run. But that's not the way Christ was. When people came to him, he challenged them, what do you seek? What, why is it that you're coming this way? What, what is it that you want? He asked them that question, what do you seek to get an answer from them? He knows, but he's just getting an answer out of them to, in, in order to manifest who they are. And we will notice that in a moment, what their answer is. But let's see another example of this. In Luke chapter 9, in Luke chapter 9, verse 57, Luke 9, 57, there are three individuals who approach Christ and let's see how he, Christ, deals with them. It's going to be similar to what do you seek, in that he's not going to jump and scream and put his arms around them immediately. It's going to be in this way. Luke 9, 57. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go, proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. We have to assume in these three examples that these three men are making excuses. That's why Christ is answering this way, or at least if they're not making excuses, he's really challenging them to consider, is this what you really want? Do you really want to follow me? Okay, so in verse 57, somebody approaches, I will follow you wherever you go. Well, that is a quite a, a significant statement to make. I will follow you wherever you go. That is, if Jesus goes to a dangerous place, if he goes to a foreign country, if he travels a thousand miles away, if he does something like that, really, you're going to go wherever I go? Really? Is that the way it's going to be? So Jesus challenges that statement. He doesn't run to him. He doesn't hold his hands or he doesn't hug him and say, wonderful, come, follow me. He doesn't say it that way. He challenges him about his sincerity. Verse 58, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Yes, you said wherever I go, but it's going to be very difficult. God provides for the animals, but for his dedicated disciples, God may sometimes not give them a place to sleep. He may not give that. Just like the Son of Man sometimes does not have a place to sleep. Verse 59. In this case, Christ approaches somebody and says, follow me. Follow me. But that individual says, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now, we know from Christ's answer, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God, that that man was not sincerely wanting to go and bury his father. He was using it as an excuse to avoid following Christ. It was an excuse to avoid following him. And the same in verse 61. I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Yes, I need to go say goodbye to everybody. After all, we, we have to love our families, right? So I want to go and say goodbye to them. But actually, he is putting, in verse 61, this man is putting family first. Family first. Family above Christ. Saying, well, I have to say goodbye, just like the previous one. I have to bury my father. Of course, those are priorities in life, right? Well, in the normal situation, in the sincere, genuine situation, of course, you need to bury your father. And of course, if you're going to say goodbye, you have to say farewell to your family in a normal situation, but not to somebody who's insincere, not somebody who's making excuses. And so Christ rebuffs this and says, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. He knew that they were insincere and wanted to subvert the will of God in their life. And that's why he speaks that way. Well, in the same way, I think, but with less re rebuffed since he knows who they are and what their intentions are. In John 1, 38, he says, what do you seek? So that their intentions might be manifested or vocalized, which they do. It says in John 1, 38, and they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? First, let's see how they address him. They address him as Rabbi. Now, Rabbi uh, basically means uh, a, a great one, and a great one meaning one who's got a, a position of uh, authority, one who's got a position of teaching uh, someone else. So the greater, the lesser in that sense. It's not saying great in the sense that uh, necessarily the person is uh, faultless or the person is uh, God in, in the flesh, not like that. In this case, it does have greater meaning because they're saying it in reference to Christ. But the word rabbi 
is used throughout history to speak, especially among Jews, to speak of their teachers, to speak of their religious teachers. They're called rabbis or teachers. And that's what John tells us. Translated, it simply means teacher because of the position of authority, uh, the greatness of his task, the responsibility that he has to teach the people. So that's how they address him. This was common for those who had formal training and even sometimes for those who did not have formal training. Christ did not have formal training, yet he was considered a teacher. So they already knew that. And how did they know that? They had to know that because John was teaching that. John was preaching that, that he would be the ultimate, the supreme rabbi or the supreme teacher. And if we're going to learn anything... We must learn from Christ. Right? If we're going to learn anything, we must learn from Christ and by His Holy Spirit. This is where we ought to go. Not to human teachers, though there's a place for them. Our ultimate place, our ultimate authority is Christ, the supreme teacher. This is very, very important. Remember, we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, both in chapters 1 and 3 of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is dealing with the people in the churches who are, who are basically they are uh, sycophants and fanboys of certain teachers, which should not be the case. It should not be the case that we say, I like so-and-so, you like so-and-so, and then you read, you always talk about you, you, the, this teacher or commentator can do no wrong, something like that. It should not be that way. We should use discernment, use sobriety, use objectivity. Yes, we may learn from many teachers, both dead teachers and live teachers. We may learn from them. There is a place for them in the Bible. But we should not be so enthusiastic about them, so giddy about them, that it causes us to not use our mind if a teacher says something that is unbiblical or does something that's unbiblical, we should have that kind of objectivity. But not with Christ. But when we read Christ and the word of Christ, everything Christ says in the Bible is true. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. And this word of Christ that we study is what is going to inform us and instruct us to be able to understand any other teacher. The word of Christ. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Another matter we have to clarify when they address him as teacher. They don't mean, there is no way they mean a mere teacher. Not a mere teacher, solely a teacher. That's not what Christ is. We know that to be the case because that they mean it in a greater sense, because of verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Which, verse 36 says, Behold the Lamb of God. And then if we continue reading in John chapter 1, verse 41, it says, We have found the Messiah. And then if we read in verse 49, once Nathaniel encounters Christ, he says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Son of God means he has a divine nature. You are the King of Israel. That's the sense in which they meant teacher. Not teacher in a merely human sense. In a fallen human, they did not mean it that way. We need to have that clarification because many times if you talk to people, those within Christianity and those outside of Christianity when you mention Christ, mention the gospel, and ask them what they know or what they appreciate, understand about it, they will say, Jesus was a good teacher. Period. Jesus was a good teacher. Merely a good teacher. But not anything more than that. He was one of the good religious teachers in human history. That's all they mean by it. But that's not what the Bible means. He was more than a teacher in that definition of the term teacher. He was the son of God, the king of Israel, the lamb of God, the, the one who takes away the sin of the world. That's who he was. 
Further, verse 38 says, Rabbi, where are you staying? Where are you staying? What do they want to do? They want to not see Christ from a distance. They want to see Christ personally. They want to see him in proximity. They want to see him in nearness. They want to touch him. They want to hear him. They want to be right next to him. This is what happens. This is what happens when Christ is introduced. Now, they're not being introduced to Christ as salvation, but in terms of personal contact and ministry. But the analogy can be made when somebody introduces Christ to another. If the person is truly believing in Christ, he will not stiff arm the knowledge of Christ. He will not keep Christ at a distance. He will not occasionally think of Christ. He will not occasionally want anything to do with Christ. No, he will want to draw near to Christ. As in this case, where are you staying? They wanted to stay with him. They wanted to lodge with him because what happens when you stay with or lodge or spend your time in company with others in a house or in a lodge? What happens? You get to know those people, right? And you're not afraid of that. You want to know and grow, so you go and seek that out. And then the teacher wants to help others to grow and know, so he helps them in that personal and intimate way. They are showing that by this that they are very eager and eager to know Christ and to know Him in a very intimate and personal way, which should be all of us. It's not enough as Christians to keep Christ at a distance. We must want Him and know Him in a personal way. Verse 39, He does not... Stiff arm them. Notice verse 39. They don't stiff arm him and he does not stiff arm them. Verse 39. He said to them, come and you will see. They came therefore and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. When teachers have disciples who want to learn and grow, the teacher who is a true teacher will not keep them at a distance. He will want to know them, and he will want them to know him. In this case, and in this way, the pastor knows his people. The people know their pastor. This is not the pastor of a church of a thousand who doesn't know the the people in the congregation, and they don't know him. It doesn't work that way. Even in John 10, my sheep... Know me, they hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He knows them all by name. He counts them all. He knows who they are. They know him. He knows them. They get to know each other. As time passes, they come to know each other more and more. This is the way it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be a distance relationship. It does not do for the pastor to be ignorant of the people and to never, never practice hospitality, never practice any kind of generosity towards the people of the church. It should not be that way. It should be the very opposite. That's what Christ practiced. They stayed with him that day, it says, for it was about the 10th hour. The 10th hour is likely a reckoning that means that the day divided in two 12-hour blocks starts at 6 a.m. and then goes to 6 p.m. So you would start the first hour, would begin at 6, and then the 10th hour would be 4 p.m. So there's about two more hours of daylight. And Christ, understanding that, knowing that, he doesn't send them off to go find a place to to stay. He he, uh, allows or invites them to stay with him. And that's what happens. He recognizes the need. He recognizes the circumstances. He uh, practices generosity towards these two new disciples. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. In verse 40, he's making reference to the two of verse 35 and the two of verse 37. Now, clearly one of those two is now named and his name is Andrew. 
The other one, I think, most likely was John the Apostle who wrote this book. Because John the Apostle, just as other, other writers of Scripture, John the Apostle, I believe, um, conceals his identity or does not um, flaunt who he is and what he's doing. He conceals it in a way, and by implication we know who he's talking about. So likely it's John the Apostle. So it's likely Andrew and John the Apostle who are these two disciples, and they followed Christ. Now, in verse 40, when it says Andrew, Andrew eventually becomes one of the twelve. When the twelve are collected, Andrew is one of the twelve apostles, or one of the twelve disciples. Here he's identified as Simon Peter's brother. Why? Because everybody knows about Simon Peter, or Simon, or Peter. We more know him as Peter. So these two are brothers. What do we know of Andrew? Notice in verse 41, we will speak more of this. It says, he found first his own brother Simon. He found first his own brother Simon. What do we know of this Andrew? This Andrew first goes to his brother. And I think one of the qualities of Andrew is that once he knows he opens his mouth. Once he knows or wants to know, he says something or does something about it. When he sees a need, he acts on it. When he sees a need, he acts on it. That's the character, I think, of Andrew. In this case, the need was, well, he's got a brother named Simon. Simon needs to know. I know now, so he needs to know. Let's see more examples of, of Andrew who wants to know or, and wants others to know. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. In this case of John 6, the 5,000 men plus women and children have been following Christ, and it's late in the day, and they need food. So John 6, verse 8. John 6, verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Okay, so Andrew sees a need and he's perplexed as to how we're going to meet this need. He wants to help and fill the gap. John chapter 12. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 20. 12, 20. Now there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast these therefore came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and they told Jesus. See that? There were certain Greeks who wanted to see Christ. Philip learns of it. Philip tells Andrew, and then it says in verse 22, Andrew and Philip came. It puts Andrew first. Why? Probably because he took initiative. He saw a need. These people wanted to see. So he took initiative and to introduce them to Christ. And then one more place. Uh, actually, two more places. Um, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 13. This one will not necessarily show initiative, but it will show his faithfulness to Christ even after Christ's ascension and he continues in the ministry. Acts chapter 1 will begin actually at verse 12. After Christ ascended into heaven, Acts 1:12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is Peter and John and James and Andrew. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. So Andrew remains faithful, and we do know from church history, he remained faithful to death, and possibly even was crucified in a miserable way over a couple of days period of time. Now, one more place, and that's Mark chapter 13. Mark 
13. Here Christ will mention that the temple will be destroyed and um, mention his return. And notice who is curious to know. Mark 13, 3. 13, 3. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Andrew was curious. He wanted to know and he wanted to grow. Now, when we return to John 1, John chapter 1, we notice here in John 1 verse 40 that this Simon is called Simon Peter. Simon was his given name initially by his parents, and then Peter becomes his name as given by the Lord Christ in verse 42. But sometimes the scripture will put the two together, Simon Peter, to avoid confusion as to which Simon we're speaking of. Why? As we read in Acts chapter 1, there was another one called Simon the Zealot. So two of the disciples of the 12 disciples of Christ had the name Simon, just as two of them had the name James. They had, uh, and two of them had the name Judas. So we have Simon the Zealot and here Simon Peter. But Peter is given another name, uh, sorry, Simon is given another name, that is Peter. We notice here also in John 1, 40 to 41, he's called the brother. Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon. Why do you think the apostle makes a point of this? I believe he's making a point of this because If you have found the truth, if you have found Christ, this will be the most important thing in your whole life. Then the first place you should go is to your own family. Is to your own family. Because we should love our neighbor as ourselves, and the closest neighbors we all have are our own families. If we are married, it will be our spouse. And then from there to our children. And then from there to our relatives. It will be our parents, our, our cousins, our aunts, uncles, nephews, nieces, whoever they are. It will go from there. That's where our first major concern should be. If we love our neighbor. Andrew loved his brother, Simon Peter. That's why he went first to him. And that's what we should do too. If we love our neighbor as herself, we will go to them to preach the gospel. Is that not what... The purpose is of the gospel. Remember what John's ministry entailed? John, or uh, Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Luke 1, 17. John the Baptist's ministry entailed this reconciliation and renewal of families, those who believe in Christ. 1, 17. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit of and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This was the purpose of the ministry of John. That's the purpose of the ministry of Christ too. Our ministry should be like this. It should be. When you came to Christ, was it enough for you to keep it quiet And a secret? No. What did you think about? Who did you think about the moment you heard the truth? When you had joy over the truth, who did you think about? You would have thought about your own blood, your own flesh and blood, first and foremost. Perhaps then you would have thought about your friends, your best friend, and go from there. And then you'd think about your co-workers, people that you like, people that you talk to, you would begin to spread the gospel that way. That's the way it should be. should start with the small circle, the inner circle, and go out to other people. Andrew did so. He then exclaims in verse 41, we have found the Messiah. There is no way he would have whispered this. There is no way he would have gone to a, a secret corner to say that. 
I don't think he did that, knowing the way Andrew was, knowing the way the Bible speaks of this. If you have found the Messiah, if you have found Christ, you will not keep it to yourself. You will want to snatch others out of the fire. You will want to compel them to come in. You will want to uh, say, like the apostle in 2 Corinthians 4.13, as it is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We believe, therefore we speak. We would be like Noah, a preacher of righteousness. We will want to open our mouths and share what we know, and we want others to know the same because it is our salvation. There is salvation and no one else. So we would want to do so. And that's what he does here. He exclaims this to Simon, his brother, that we have found the Messiah. We meaning he and the other disciple unnamed have found the Messiah. Now, according to the book of Daniel, according to the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, Daniel the prophet in 600 BC was given a timeline for the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ. And in verses 25 and 26, he actually mentions the coming of Christ or the name Christ two times. Whether it's the word Messiah or Christ, we're talking about the same one, Jesus. We're talking about him. And he mentions it twice and he calls him Messiah the Prince. And by Messiah the Prince, he means the king. Just as he had been praying in his prayer earlier in in, um, Daniel chapter 9 about the sin of the princes of his own day. But in this case, Messiah the Prince is not going to be a sinner like his own princes were. He's going to be perfect and die as the Christ or the Prince die for us and make an end of sin, make atonement for our iniquity. He predicted that. And he predicted it based on the restoration of Jerusalem. You see, by the time of Daniel, in his prayer, Jerusalem was in misery because the invaders, the foreigners, Babylonians came, destroyed the people, took them away, massacred many of them, took them away, exiled them into foreign lands, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and especially destroyed the temple of Jerusalem. That marvelous and magnificent temple that Solomon had built about 900 BC, by 600 BC, it's gone. It's gone. Actually, technically, by 586 BC, the temple was destroyed. And that was the consequence of their misery, well, uh, or of their sin. They, therefore, in this state of misery, Daniel prays in Daniel chapter 9, and he's wanting restoration. So their restoration ultimately is always founded on Christ. Always on Christ. So God gives to Daniel, through the angel Gabriel, a timeline and says that from the time of the restoration and rebuilding of Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince comes, this is what will happen. And then when he comes, this is what will happen. That's the timeline he gives. So, the people, if they were studious, if the people correctly interpreted Daniel chapter 9, then they would have known that the appearance of the Christ was imminent in their own generation. They would have known that. They did not know specifically which individual until John pointed and said, Behold the Lamb of God. But they did know to expect it in their time. That's why he says, We have found the Messiah. That's the sense in which he's saying, We have found the Messiah. The time has come. You may also recall in Luke chapter 2, 25 to 32, there was another man named Simeon. He was an old man, and the Holy Spirit had told him that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. He was an old man, but the Holy Spirit promised him that before he died, he was going to be able to see Christ. And he held him in his arms and blessed God. This was what that man Simeon experienced. And so they had an idea about when Christ would come in his first coming. Further, it calls him in verse 41, the Messiah. The Messiah, which translated means Christ. Messiah is a Hebrew word from the Old Testament, such as from Daniel 9, 
25 and 26, right there in those two verses, twice the name is mentioned or the title is mentioned, Messiah. It's a, it's a Hebrew word and it's also a word that goes into Aramaic. But when it is transliterated into English, it comes to us in English as Messiah. But when it is translated, it goes from Hebrew, translated into Greek, and the Greek word for the Hebrew word Mashiach is the Greek word Christos. Christos has the same meaning, same designation, same reference as Mashiach in the Hebrew Old Testament. So in the New Testament, Christos is that. So when this Christos word is rendered into English or brought into English, it is also a transliteration and it's abbreviated simply Christ because we don't usually have Greek endings to our English words. So Messiah from Old Testament comes into English as Messiah. Christ from the Greek New Testament comes into English as Christ. And because John, because John was writing in Greek, he has to tell the reader this, if you are unfamiliar with this Hebrew and Aramaic word, Mashiach, then this is what it means. It means Christ. But even for us, we don't know. So then we need to take an additional step. What do these words mean? What do the words Messiah or Christ mean? We know what, how they are transliterated, but what's the translation? In English, the translation is anointed one. Anointed one. Because the supreme anointed one who is the supreme prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, they were anointed when they were installed into the office of prophet, priest, and king. They were anointed by oil, or oil was poured over them, representing the presence of the Holy Spirit to fulfill that office, in the individual to fulfill that office. So, there were many prophets, priests, and kings throughout the Old Testament. But who is the supreme one that all those other ones typified and illustrated. The supreme one is Christ Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the Savior or the Mediator, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the King. That's who He is. Verse 42. 42. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter. Now, in 42, 42, Christ, he does not have to be told who he is, apparently. Presumably, he's brought to him, that is, Simon is brought to Christ, and Christ identifies to Simon things he knows about Simon. Simon, you are the son of John. Even though you are the son of John, and I know this, I'm identifying you, I know who you are, giving Simon some confidence that Christ is one endowed with miraculous abilities. Now, you, we might say that as well in John 1, John 1, for example, verse 46, 146. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Guile or deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And upon the, that statement, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. See, Nathanael also understood that there were facts about Nathanael's life that only could be known in a miraculous way. Therefore, he exclaims, Philip says Christ is over there and introduces them to each other. But then when Nathanael understood this miraculous information, he said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. This is likely what Jesus is doing in 142 with Simon Peter, with Simon Peter, identifying him as the Son of John. If you are using the King James Version, both here in this verse and in chapter 21 of John, 21, 15 to 17, the King James Version will probably say Jonah. 
Simon, the son of Jonah. And yet in the New American Standard and other translations, it will say Simon, the son of John. So was he the son of John or the son of Jonah? I think it's likely he was the son of John, but in the Greek language, the pronunciation of John and Jonah have some similarities. And if one is not careful, one might misunderstand what name is being said or read. So it is likely deriving from that problem or that uh, confusion, whether he was from Jonah or from John. Because in the Greek language, when it's transferred or transcribed, it is sometimes misunderstood or misheard as to what should be rendered. And likely that is the reason why. Okay, then... What does Jesus call him? He calls him Cephas. In this, and this word, Cephas, is actually an Aramaic word because Aramaic, called by us Jewish Aramaic, because the Aramaic language was spoken by many peoples, but in that locality, in that region, when the Jews spoke, they had certain features of the language and therefore it's, uh, or distinctions in the language and therefore it's called Jewish Aramaic. In the Jewish Aramaic language, this word is kefa or kefas. Kefa or kefas. And this word means stone or rock. Stone or rock. Well, not everybody knows Aramaic because John's writing to a Greek audience. He's writing in the Greek language. So because everybody doesn't know the word kefa, kefas, what it means, he translated. It. He translates it. He says, which translated means Peter. Now, which translated means Peter. Well, in Greek, which translated means Petros. Petros. So what does Petros mean in Greek? Well, a Greek speaker would know Petros means rock or stone. It means rock or stone. So the name Peter means rock or stone. That's what name he gave to Simon at this point. And I think that he is almost exclusively, if not exclusively throughout this point onwards, most commonly known as Peter. Peter. Because of the Greek um, rendering of his name coming into English. This is the Peter that we know. And just for clarification, the word Simon, the name Simon, is an abbreviation of another word, Simeon. It's the same name, but the longer form of Simon is Simeon. Simeon was the son of Jacob in the book of Genesis. Book of Genesis chapters 29 and 30. You can read about all of the, the 12 sons of Jacob. And Simeon was that. And then he became a tribe. But when words and, and names go from one language to another, there is a tendency for syllables or uh, vowels or consonants to change here or there. And that's what has happened with this name. So Simeon becomes Simon in the New Testament primarily. It's the same name, but not the same individual. This is the new name he has given him. Now, why did he give him this name? I believe he gave him this name because he would be a very foundational stone. Not the foundational or cornerstone, but a very foundational figure in the history of the church. That's the reason why he gave him this name. He did not, I don't think at all, gave him this name because he is the first pope in history. Not because he is the first pope. If he were the, the first pope, it would go contrary to many other things written here in the Bible and in the New Testament. And even in history... This idea that Peter was the first pope did not originate in the early centuries. It originated later. And so this was a, a concoction of the Roman Catholic Church to make Peter the first pope. They speak of Peter as the head of the church. They speak of Peter in very glowing ways, in honorific ways, in, and in ways that undermine the place that Christ should have as our foundation or our cornerstone. Yes, Peter is a part of the foundation in a sense, but
but he's not the main part of the foundation. The other apostles are also a part of it. But Christ is the cornerstone. Paul did say in uh, Ephesians 2.20 that the prophets and the apostles are the foundation, Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. But there he doesn't say Peter is the foundation. He says the prophets and the apostles are the foundation and Christ is their cornerstone. And we also, Peter says, we are also in 1 Peter 2, 4 to 8, he calls us living stones. We are also stones in the building of God. And we also read 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9, which says, you are God's field, God's building. You, all of us, we believers, are in God's building, a part of God's building. That's the proper way and the proper position to give to Peter. So will we focus on the cross of Christ? And will we, based on what we know, go and proclaim to others the truth of Christ, especially to our loved ones? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.